This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132. Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. The European Union and Britain wrapped up a meeting this week by agreeing they need more time to work out the more difficult parts of their split. The biggest problem is over forming a customs border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. There's also the issue of a soft Brexit where there would be a slow transition period, perhaps as long as 21 months versus a hard exit. Prime Minister Theresa May seems to be in favor of the former, but is getting pressure from hardline Brexiteers for the latter. Whatever happens, May has to be present. Uh, the deal, to, I should say, has to present the deal to Parliament on January 21st, 2019. And the Brexit is set for right now, March 29th of 2019. With the looming deadlines, EU leaders are reportedly preparing for a no deal split. With more on the latest, we're joined here in studio by Daniel Kellerman, professor of political science and chair in European Union politics at Rutgers University. And joining us on the phone, Brendan O'Leary, lauder professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. Dan, great seeing you. Great Thanks to see you, Dan. Thank Thanks. you. Brendan, great to have you on the phone with us. Good morning to Dan. <laughs> Thank you, Brendan. So, uh, Brendan, all of this latest detail, we've talked with you a variety of times on this. Uh, how do you view the status uh, of the entire process? Well, I think we're um, in Groundhog Day again. Um, no, no real fundamental change since we last spoke. There is provisional agreement on how to deal with citizens who, who find themselves on the wrong side of uh, a potential border when the UK leaves the EU. There's provisional agreement on the bill that the UK has to pay 39 billion euros at least uh, in order to uh, compensate the EU for its existing commitments. There is agreement that there should be an Irish backstop, namely that if the UK leaves the customs union and the single market of the European Union, arrangements will apply in Northern Ireland that prevent the creation of threats fresh physical infrastructure. The fundamental disagreement here is that the EU and Ireland insist that the UK keep to its pledge that the backstop be permanent. That is to say, it would apply in all circumstances, whatever the UK and the EU do in future, whereas the British want it to be temporary. Now, that's that's the content of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, the parties are also stuck over the question of their future relationships, because most of this is in the future perfect tense. Um, the position of Theresa May is that she wants to negotiate as possible, uh, as much as possible into the political declaration that will make subsequent negotiations with the EU easier. I think that's a, a fair summary of where we are at the moment. Dan, your thoughts on everything? Yes, the thing I would add, and Brendan and I have talked about this before, uh, let me start with the Something I saw at my auto mechanic once. He had a sign. He said, you can have it good, fast, or cheap. you got to pick two of the three, but you can't have all three, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's called a trilemma. And that's exactly what uh, the UK is facing right now because Theresa May has promised three things, but she can only keep two of them just as a matter of logic. 
to the Tory Brexiteer extremists in her party. She promised they will leave the single market and customs union. That's a kind of hard Brexit, right? Yeah. She promised that. To the DUP, right, and to others in the UK, that that's the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland. She promised there will be no kind of internal border on the Irish Sea, so to speak, between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. And then to the Irish and through the Good Friday Agreement and to the EU, let's say, you know, she's promised there will be no border erected on the island of Ireland between yeah. Northern Ireland and the Republic. But those three things are incompatible, right? One has to give. And she basically my analysis of the overview is that she's running around in circles, you know, like a kind of chicken running around in circles because she just can't confront the fact that uh, she has to break one promise because – and we could go into it, but – the each promise that she might choose to break has very bad consequences for her. Well, let, let's let's step on that for a second because I mean I I was wondering whether or not any side of the entities, maybe the the hard Brexiteers, would be willing to to go for two of the three. But kind of take us Dan through some of the issues that we're potentially looking at here. Well, okay, I'll I'll go through it quickly, and Brendan will have things to say on this too. But you know, essentially. Um, if you try to erect uh, a border on the island of Ireland, you know, violate the Good Friday Agreement, then um, the EU has you know, promised it will back up Ireland and basically uh, not have a withdrawal agreement. So then you'll yeah. get the kind of cliff-edge Brexit with all the chaos that will ensue, be unsustainable for the UK. If you try to say, well, we're going to stay in the single market and customs union, then she splits her own party, right? Because the uh, more hardcore Brexiteers will then try to overthrow her, you know, ouster as leader, you know, that sort of thing. She could maybe get that through Parliament with the help of uh, Labour votes, right? But then that would you know, split her own party. And then finally, if she puts checks um, you know, between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, then the DUP, uh, which she relies on DUP votes because she's yep. in a minority government, yep. they've said you know, they won't accept that and then they'll make her government fall. So that's the kind of dilemma she's in. Brandon? I agree with that analysis, absolutely. Um, I would add that she has proposed, uh, naturally enough, wishful and magical thinking as a way of solving the problem. <laughs> uh, what, what she's proposed is to achieve in the political declaration uh, a promise that there will be frictionless trade between the UK and the EU in all circumstances uh, in going forward, enabling the UK somehow to make trade deals, which it can't do if it's inside a customs union with the European Union, and avoid putting up any kind of hard border on the island of Ireland. And basically what happened last month was that she was told by the EU absolutely firmly stop the wishful thinking, come back with some serious proposals that haven't arrived yet. So I, I think she has um, basic surrender options. I, either she surrenders to the EU 27 and faces down the DUP. After all, if she, if she faces down the DUP, they have a choice of trying to assist in bringing down her government. But the side consequence for that, for them, may well be the uh, election of a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn, who is enthusiastic about Irish reunification. Yeah. The other difficulty they would face, the DUP, they voted for leaving the European Union. If May's government falls, it's conceivable that there may be a second vote, uh, sorry, a second referendum on the issue of membership in which, um, at least at present, it looks highly likely that people would vote against uh, any potential deal that Mrs. May might be able to extract at the last moment. So uh, her, her position is exactly as Dan describes it. She's running around like a headless chicken expressing wishful thinking. Uh, and at some stage, this has to, to come to a halt. 
if we think about the timetable, uh, bizarrely, the House of Commons is being promised its normal Christmas holiday between December the 20th and January the 7th. Um, and if, if that goes ahead, the, the last time in which uh, the initiation of uh, a set of legislation that would consolidate the UK's withdrawal, that the last time that can commence, if the timetable is to be kept, kept is sometime in the second or third week of January. So she's running out of time, uh, and I think we'll see the colour of the eventual uh, resolution of these crises sometime in, in mid-December. Now, now, does she also have a little bit of an issue time-wise? Because from what I read, she also has to worry about putting together a, a budget for the for the next year as well. And so that may play into getting that done first before really having to tackle some of the That's other right. issues with the uh, with the potential Brexit, correct? She's is threatened by the DUP that they won't vote for her budget if she's still contemplating a, a permanent backstop. Now, of course, they have to think very carefully about that threat because uh, Mrs. May has been an incompetent negotiator with the DUP. She's um, supplied the one billion bung they received for supporting her, sorry, one billion uh, bung in sterling that they received for supporting her minority government. And they got that in advance. And now they're threatening to renege on the the deal with her. But she could, in principle, uh, use her chancellor to point out to the DUP that uh, if they don't fulfill their obligation to support the government, then funds will actually be withdrawn from Northern Ireland so that uh, the DUP will fully own the consequences of its actions. Daniel? Yo, I, I don't have anything really to add on, no. on the budget thing, but I think I would say that, uh, look, no one can tell you for sure what's going to happen with this trilemma. I think it's it, uh, there, there's a lot of uncertainty of how it will play out. But if I had to say which promise she's most likely to break, I suspect uh, it would be the promise to the DUP, even though that will cause – and I, I'd be curious what Brendan thinks. But I just think you know, the the – Breaking the promise to Ireland and to the EU and erecting a border on the island of Ireland is yeah. just a non-starter. It can't happen They because that would lead really to no withdrawal agreement and that would be too disastrous for the UK. And then, I mean, what she's trying to play with right now is with this talk of extending the transition period yeah. is in essence – telling the hardliners in her party, we are going to leave the single market and customs union, but just in a while, right? right? So she's trying to kick that can down the road. But I think, you know, I think she, I think she has more of a threat from them right. than from the DUP. She's threatened by both, but I would think that, um, you know, the explosion of the conservative party is more worrying for her, I would think. But- and, and the lengthening of that, of that temporary window, uh, uh, Brendan, from what I read, it could go as, as long as 2021, correct? Yes. Well, the the interesting thing about that potential talk of extension is there's a certain vagueness about it. There's two possible ways things could be extended. One is that the Article 50 process of exit could be extended. At the moment, that that produces the UK's departure on March the 29th of 2019. If that was extended, it would mean uh, extending the period in which the withdrawal agreement can be negotiated. That's uh, one possible extension. The second extension is extending the period in which the UK as a whole stays inside the single union and the uh, sorry the single market and the customs union while negotiating uh, an attempted comprehensive free trade agreement with the European Union. Now the talk there is. 
of perhaps extending that period by um, a, a year. Uh, I've, I've also heard uh, as little as three months. Mm-hmm. But whatever the number, it's probably much less than what's actually required to achieve such negotiations. Canada, for example, took seven years to negotiate uh, a trade agreement with the European Union after uh, starting the process uh, roughly 22 years earlier. Now, admittedly, it's conceivably easier for the UK to do better than that because of the existing alignments with uh, so much of European laws and, and regulations. But the idea that there will be a quick agreement is, a, is another of the persistent illusions that characterize this, this process. So you, do you, you believe at this point that we're going to see something that goes past the March 29th deadline at this point? No, I, I expect, like Dan, that the weakest uh, party in all of this is the DUP. The DUP right. is a, a minority party. In Northern Ireland, it's not. It does not express the will of a uh, full majority, though it talks as if it does. Uh, Northern Ireland voted substantially to remain, and the polls show that an even higher proportion would vote to remain today. The proposal to to um, have a, a backstop amounts to no more than reinforcing existing patterns in which the ports of Northern Ireland, there's about six of them, and the ports in Great Britain. Uh, which currently do administer uh, a whole range of issues related to trade and uh, internal regulation, that their 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 tasks would be uh, significantly um, upgraded in importance. But it would not involve some dramatic institutional transformation. That's what Michel Barnier, the uh, French leader of the negotiating team for the EU, was trying to emphasize in the last six months. Namely, uh, we're going to try and de- dramatize the question. Northern Ireland will be treated differently, but it will be leaving the EU uh, along with the the rest of the UK. But these arrangements, which in effect keep Northern Ireland in the single market and the customs union, are actually an opportunity uh, for Northern Ireland, a benefit for them. It minimizes the costs and maximizes their opportunities to have the best of both worlds. So for those reasons, I I think the, the House of Commons is likely to look askance at following the DUP into a, a cliff-edge Brexit. So I think their position is the weakest of all the, uh, the players in the game. Right. I, may be, I may prove to be wrong about that, but I think that's uh, they're in a weak position. Yeah, yeah no, I'd agree with that. And I, I think it's you know, the way the opponents of this are playing it, um, the, this outcome that Brendan described is to say, oh, the, the EU is sort of trying to steal Northern Ireland or, you know, make us uh, erect a border within our own country and that's yeah. unacceptable sovereignty, et cetera. But as he said, you know, the, uh, Northern Ireland already has a special status within the UK. There are already some kind of checks on um, uh, uh, livestock or things like that, uh, you know, at these ports, you know, there, there's some inspection. So it would be a matter of ramping them up and not, you know, a matter of uh, sort of carving off a section of the UK and just pulling it into the EU. Yeah. So then, I mean, with the DUP, as you both have mentioned, not having a significant amount of power, what kind of impact could they have? Let's assume for a second that Theresa May does choose that as the as the option to not honor uh, what kind of repercussion could we see or impact could we see from the DUP then? Dan? Uh, well, you know, let, let me let okay, Brandon Brad. speak to that first. He's a real DUP expert, okay. even more than I. Brandon? So I, I think what would happen then is the collapse of the supply and confidence uh, arrangement between the DUP and May's minority government. And she would then require 
the support of at least some Labour MPs, uh, those in constituencies that voted Leave, those in sitting in seats where they expect to be replaced by future more left-wing Labour candidates, uh, that they will vote to facilitate her getting a soft exit rather than being held uh, culpable either for the failure of exit or for a cliff edge exit. So there's lots of rumours that uh, May is having conversations with um, Labour people. There are there are about five Labour uh, MPs who constantly vote uh, against the Labour whip in favour of, of leaving. And there are probably a significant amount of others who would favour a, a soft exit. That's a risky path for her because, of course, um, Labour MPs will, uh, of all stripes will be looking forward to the opportunity of seeing the Conservatives divide chaotically and perhaps precipitating a general election in which they might expect to do very well. All the while, is the clock continuing to run on Theresa May in terms of how long she will actually probably be in the position of prime minister at this point? Well, it's very difficult for the Conservatives because of their own internal rules to um, assassinate her quickly. <laughs> um, they, they need a significant period of time, and replacing a, a leader uh, in the middle of a potential general election campaign is not a welcome uh, moment. So, so the question, the, the really important uh, question is the extent to which hardline conservative MPs would actually prefer to precipitate a hard exit, no agreement, uh, rather than accept the consequences of a soft exit. If we think about this institutionally, and uh, it's always important to think about institutions, at this moment, the UK is scheduled to leave on March the 29th, 2019, unless either the UK government or the EU halts that process. Right. So the, the hardliners can say to themselves, okay, uh, we want to get out. We'd, we'd actually prefer a hard exit where we have the freedom to make our own trade deals with other, other countries in the future. We don't want to be trapped into the customs union and the single market for any length of transition. So uh, let's go ahead. Let's make it difficult for Theresa May to make her her soft and weak agreement. Uh, and if we're if we're right in this calculation, we can. Uh, force her to drag us across the line on March the 29th, and we're out. Now, of course, that's highly risky because it's costly. It, it will trigger, uh, in my view, another significant fall in sterling, uh, possible major losses of investment, uh, great anger in the business community. So they'd have to contemplate all of those difficulties. Now, if you trace that all through, you might come to the conclusion, actually, they're bluffing. And she may come to that conclusion that they're bluffing. But she's got a lot of calculations to make about uh, bluffers, both in the DUP and among hardline conservatives. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess I would just add, I think while there's a lot of talk uh, about machinations going on of leadership challenges, there was just uh, some whispers yesterday that Davis, David Davis might be talking about it. But I think she's benefiting from the fact that people are, forgive the uh, uh, analogy, but sort of treating her like a mop. Uh, to soak up all the muck from Brexit and and then to jump jump in at the right moment uh, after that so then they can kind of blame the costs on her mismanagement sure, yeah. and then just step in and say, okay, well, we've reached bottom under her. I'm the new leader. I'm going to try to get us going in a better direction. And so, you know, it's, it's a job, it's sort of a job no one wants right now. Um, 
I, I agree, Dan, and uh, you, may, you may not know this, but the word for muck derives from the Irish word for a pig. Oh, I didn't know that, but that is a good one to, to know now. <laughs> but, it, but it does feel like it, it's almost been set up that way for her to take, you know, all of the blame now for, for the last, you know, 18 months at this point, correct? Yeah, yeah well, exactly. exactly. And um, you know, whoever, look, I, I think she's mismanaged things in many respects, but I think whoever uh, was in that position yeah. would have been faced with a lot of awful choices. And because the thing is, that really what's being revealed in all this, right, that Brexit was a kind of con in the sense that, um, you know, my father always said to me, don't believe your own propaganda. That was one of his sure, favorite yeah, sayings. Yeah. And the Brexiteers, you know, painted this rosy picture that this would make Britain all better off with no costs yep. and all this thing. And, you know, reality uh, has exposed that as false. It's, and that's not to even say, you know, you can make arguments for Brexit if you are realistic about the high costs that come with it, sure. right? Yeah. But they weren't. And so whoever was um, at the helm as they moved through this process was going to have to deal with the fact that you know people were going to come face-to-face with the realization that this is a very costly process for the British economy and with you know few tangible benefits uh, at all, uh, at least in the short and medium term. So um, that, I think, um, you know, that that's something where, uh, you know, despite her, her flaws and her failures, uh, you know, to some extent that was inevitable. Brandon? Well, they, they greatly, meaning the Brexiteers, greatly exaggerated their bargaining position. Mm-hmm. They yeah. thought because of the size of the UK economy the, that the EU would have to come to terms. In fact, what this process demonstrates is that exiting the European Union is very like joining it. Uh, you surrender comprehensively to the EU all the way down the path. Because the EU, because of the the very nature of its organization, it's not capable of making fundamental compromises with third parties that might compromise its own internal integrity. So just as when you accede to the European Union, there aren't really negotiations. The EU simply tells you what you have to do in order to become a member, and you have to make your legislation compliant with that. Likewise, on exit, you have to comply with the EU's requirements that you make arrangements on citizenship, you make arrangements on paying your bills, and then you wait until you've actually left before you negotiate the uh, future relationship. So that's what's proven to be uh, important here. And in addition, of course, Mrs. May blew it. She began the negotiations by announcing her red lines, Mm -hmm. and then she decided to hold a general election to strengthen her negotiating position in her own party, proved to be a totally wooden and inadequate campaigner, and that left her in hock to the DUP, thereby um, making her negotiating position even more difficult. So what we have at the moment is this absurd farce that since... Uh, the summer of 2016, the Conservatives have largely been negotiating with themselves rather than the EU. And when they finally produced Mrs. May's checker agree- uh, checkers agreement as a proposal, it it was still stiffly embedded with a great deal of, of wishful thinking. And the EU has basically poured cold water over those those proposals and told her to think again. You mentioned this the strength of the UK economy, Brendan. Uh, it's not only just the strength of the UK economy that that 
you know was a perception but also the, the kind of the standing within of, of that economy within the european union as well because uh, it, while it is a very strong economy you also have the strength that that germany obviously has uh at the forefront of this arrangement but also an entity like france as well right um, there the perception the conservatives had was that the german political class will basically in the final uh, analysis do whatever BMW and Mercedes-Benz want them to do. It was a crude view of uh, the German political system. And they also thought just the scale of uh, trade and commerce between Germany and the UK would mean that Germany would be in the vanguard of making concessions to the UK. That has proven to be total and complete wishful thinking. Uh, A Frenchman leads the negotiations for very good reasons. Uh, He's not experienced one moment in which it's been suggested that any significant member state is unhappy with the way he's been conducting the negotiations. The EU 27 have provided a remarkable united front. Indeed, one might say secession is the only thing on which uh, EU 27 uh, member states are likely to be in comprehensive agreement. They have to make it true that it's tougher to be outside the EU than um, to be a member. Dan, any final thoughts as where we are now and where we're headed over the next five months or so? Well, yeah, just to pick up on the last point Brendan made, even though you know from before the vote happened, I thought uh, Brexit would be a disaster for the UK uh, for all these reasons. One thing that I've been surprised by is the remarkable degree of unity that the EU has maintained, and you know the the British government has kept trying to uh, pursue kind of divide and conquer techniques, meeting one to one with heads of government from the different yeah. countries, trying to see if they could convince them, and they just keep saying. Michel Barnier is our negotiator for the 27, and you talk to him, we've given him our uh, remit. He's got autonomy on this one. Well, or not not exactly autonomy. They've given him, um, you know, the marching orders. Yeah, the marching orders. This is what we agree to. And you represent us, and uh, right? And they then resist all efforts uh, to sort of play the one off the other. And you know, and I, th- I think it comes down in the end, you know, this dominant position of the EU that, however big the UK economy is, right, the EU economy is much bigger. So it's like a yeah. game of chicken where one person is in a little car and one's in a Mack truck, let's say, and that <laughs> Mack truck is the EU. And Barnier, uh, he has this famous diagram, it's sometimes called Barnier's Slide or Barnier's Steps, Mm -hmm. where you just outlined, these are the options, right, for your future relationship with us. You know, the the closest would be staying in the EU, but you want to leave, and then it goes all the way down to the most distant relation, which is just we're all in the WTO and we trade, but we have no special trade deals or anything, right? Right. And, And in between, there's a bunch of options, right? And he essentially what he said from the beginning was, okay, you have to pick one of these, right? Yeah. But the UK is essentially unable to pick because they keep saying, well, we want something different. You know, this is what's called the we want our cake and eat it. We want, you know, some of this, but some of that. We want some of the benefits of being all the way in without some of the obligations. And so they just won't take one of the options. And, um, yeah, he is – it's like talking to a wall. I mean, in a sense, he he listens and he says, okay, but which option do you want, right? Which You know, and uh, and that's where we are, I think. Brandon, final thoughts? The the, To summarize that, the – EU has basically told the UK, your fundamental choices, given your express preferences, is either Norway or Canada. You might sequence it. You might go for the Norwegian option first, staying in the 
um, single market and then uh, switch to Canada. But those are your choices. And by the way, we're not giving you a Swiss deal in which you have 122, 123 separate treaties with the EU. We know what that was like for us in the EU. You're not getting that arrangement. Great talking to you, Brandon. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Dane. Great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.